Hello and welcome to the 300th episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. My God, Craig, did you ever think we'd get to 300? Absolutely not. <laughs> I didn't think we'd get to 30. Like, <laughs> this is insane. Kind of oh my gosh, we started out the very first episode with the people under the stairs. And then I think when we got to 50, we were like, we should do another Wes Craven one since it's like our 50th. And we started with the Wes Craven one. And then pretty much every milestone after that, with one exception, I think we did something wicked this way comes for like our 150th or something. Yeah, like maybe we through. did. We we deviated from our formula once. I, we but, broke uh, the chain. But, <laughs> but then we came back to it. It didn't curse us. <laughs> We're still going another 150 episodes later. So uh, here we are. We we still have more Wes Craven stuff to choose from, and not even the most obscure stuff either. The movie that we chose for today is 1977's The Hills Have Eyes, probably one of Wes Craven's more most notorious ones from his early period. Yeah, uh, This was only the second movie, I think, that he had written, and he really didn't want to continue doing horror. Right. He was an English teacher but really wanted to get into filmmaking. Uh, he wrote The Last House on the Left, directed it too, right? And primarily for the uh, you know drive-in crowd, just a cheap exploitation movie, but um, based off of an Ingmar Bergman film, you know? The guy's smart, and he has, he has a very literary mind and a, a good sense of what makes a good story and uh, had good material to kind of choose from. But that movie's pretty brutal. Yeah, yeah, very brutal. It's really nasty. Yeah, uh, and it's definitely hardcore exploitation, and he really wanted to do something non-exploitative, but nothing was really getting off the ground, and uh, he just realized, uh, I could do another horror film, and this was the result. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, it's funny, if I remember correctly, I think um, that the producer said, look, you know, like, uh, we're out in Nevada, and... uh, you know our families are here there's lots of desert let's 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 make a desert horror movie <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh i guess craven went i he went into like the archives of um like uh true crime stuff and was just kind of looking around and found a story of this family from the 1400s um, in England, I believe, or Scotland, in I don't Scotland. remember. Scotland. Yeah, Sonny Bean. Sonny Bean and his supposed clan. Yeah, and it was like this feral family who um, captured, tortured, and ate transients. And, um, <laughs> av- and like they lived on the coast in this cave that faced the sea and like the the cave would be concealed at high tide and nobody could find them and but eventually one of their victims escaped and and talked to you know went to the king and um they were captured and uh then they were all brutally tortured and killed as punishment for their crimes and that was really his inspiration for this movie which i think is so interesting that like the the idea of you know what is the difference between being civilized versus being savage and ultimately how the most civilized 
of people can be just as savage as the most savage of people and vice versa. And that was kind of the setup for this story, which is far deeper than you would anticipate for this type of movie. But if you look at it through that lens, it makes a lot of sense. And it's actually... It, it, it's it's interesting in an intellectual way. I mean, the movie is is brutal. It's a brutal horror movie. Um, it's violent and and scary. But honestly, if if you look at it through that lens, you you've got this white suburban um, Midwest family who you would never anticipate could be capable of the kind of violence and brutality that eventually happens here. But when faced with it, uh, I don't know if it's just that their primal instincts surface when survival is necessary, but it, it I mean, it does. It's kind of like a survival instinct too, right? You know, yeah, um, yeah. There are a lot. There are a lot of movies, you know, since then, and and probably before this to a certain degree, you know, have dealt with this. Straw Dogs by Sam Peckinpah, one mm-hmm. of my favorite uh, movies. It's really up there in my top like fifty. Uh, Deliverance, you know, yeah. um, where you know you just have these kind of people who are quite naive coming into a place, and also <clears throat> with Deliverance and with that, and I think also with this movie, there's another subtext, and that is that like these folks are the sort of outcast. They're the disadvantaged folks. I feel like this movie's really dripping with that subtext too, particularly the way it's set up. Um, when this family drive is driving through the desert to go to California, like you said, um, he's the the father's name is Bob. I think he's a retired uh, police officer. The mom is like super Christian, super nice gal who's always huddling the family up to pray and right. telling everybody to watch their language. Um, you know, they have a, a daughter and a son, and then they have um, significant others. Um, and there's a baby, and they're all just, you know, it's this very suburban, typical, like, middle-class American road trip with a camper trailer right. that they're, you know, Winnebago. Dri- drive, driving behind their their station wagon, you know? I mean, even up into the 80s, this is such a trope. Uh, you know, it's just something we all laugh about. And they're driving through a, a place they're completely unfamiliar with. You know, it could have been the woods. In fact, I, I read that he had originally wrote the script to take place in the in the wilderness. Uh-huh. But this is just as much wilderness. I don't know if you've ever driven much through, like, the west, west part or southwest of the United States where it's just nothing but miles and miles and miles of desert. As far as you can see. You right. can see for miles. And there's nothing there. You know, and it except the sun and a very big landscape that, although beautiful and expansive, is very unfamiliar, you know, to most of us. Yet, this is a place where our military has set up bases and has famously, you know, experimented with, um, with, with weapon, with weaponry and uh, atomic bombs. And it, it has actually had an effect on the few people that have lived out there, most of whom are living out there because their economic conditions dictate it, you know? Right. It's, it's cheap enough to be out there. And so in many ways, like, uh, they're, they're victims of, of uh, these sort of terrible experiments where, you know, nobody really gave a shit, you know, about right. these people and, and knew what was going to happen and didn't really care. 
Uh, and so it feels like it's that kind of harsh, brutal environment, very much like the guys jumping into the wilderness of the Appalachians or wherever it is in, in Deliverance, you know, where they're really out of their league. They really don't know what they're going, getting into. Um, they're just off on their sense of adventure. Going to California. <laughs> yeah. Telling you we're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I wonder how far it is to the nearest cheeseburger. We don't usually get folk up this way. Where are you heading? California. L.A. Movie stars in fancy cars. California? You sure as hell off the beaten track for that? They go up to the gas station, and uh, it's the last gas station for miles. And uh, Fred, Fred's oasis, you know. Yeah. This tiny little grizzly guy, you know, who's who's seventy something. He's in his seventies. I did the math based on the story he was telling. He's somewhere in his seventies, and what does he do? He says, "You guys just do not veer from the road. Keep going. Don't go to the mountains. Don't do anything like that." It's just, it's very much the gas station trope that I think the a few years before this was more or less set up by uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which Wes Craven admired very much. And yeah, uh, big inspiration. And, and, took a lot of inspiration from it even used some um crew from there props yeah yeah yeah, yeah it right and you're right you know I, i'm a a small town guy um but the area that i live in is relatively rural so i'm accustomed to the expanse of like a forest and even in you know, this is middle America where I live. The wilderness is accessible, but it's dangerous. You know, if you get lost out there, you could potentially be lost indefinitely. Um, I haven't done a lot of uh, travel to the Southwest, but I have visited Las Vegas. Las Vegas is one of my favorite places in the world. And, you know, it's just this crazy little city set in this valley in the desert surrounded by mountains. <laughs> and, and and I have um, driven in and around Los Angeles and I visited the desert out there too. And uh, it, it's, it's, and the production crew and cast talk about this and some behind the scene things that we've seen um craven and his producer scouted this area i think they ended up filming in a place called apple valley or something like that in nevada and it's just uh you know it's it's the desert and in the summer the temperatures would reach 125 degrees during the day um completely desolate and isolated uh where they filmed was a good 30 minutes from any civilization and so they just packed their entire casting crew into like two or three winnebagos and drove them out there each day and it was you know the just scorching hot weather um and and when they were scouting this area and they were asking around about it you know people familiar with the area were like don't go out there you'll die <laughs> 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 and here are these you know two guys from New York scouting this area and they commented about how beautiful it is and it is um, you know, just, uh, it, it's, it's a, a valley, basically. It's just lots of flat land, um, but completely surrounded by these rocky hills 
that are beautiful as landscape, but also treacherous. Um, mm-hmm. and, and just the environment, the environment itself is dangerous and scary and, and take out the mutant hill people and these suburbanites who are completely out of their element stranded um with a disabled car in the desert that alone is life-threatening um it is (laughs) but then but then you you know you you throw in these this this family of uh antagonists who you know they're the bad guys they're they're cannibal um killers mutants um but (laughs) frankly they're just minding their own business and these people have encroached on their territory and these people you know are out there and they are desperate you know fred the gas station guy um he talks in one of the very early scenes to what I, I think is the youngest of the clan, a girl named Ruby, played by Janice Blythe, and Ruby explains that they are desperate. Here. Oh, no, you don't. Uh-uh. Ain't no trading today, Ruby. And not no more, neither. You folks gone too far. Trooper's been snooping around. Air Force been through here twice. You folks have to go rob a goddamn Air Force PX, for guys' sakes. I'm hungry. No one comes through back there anymore. They've basically, you know, been abandoned by civilization and society, and they're just doing what they can and what they have to do to survive. And she is desperate to escape, um, but uh, really doesn't have any outlet. Fred is planning on leaving, and, and Ruby wants to go with him, but he says, no, your dad would gut me if he found out that I even was thinking about leaving, let alone taking you with me. So mm-hmm. as, as villainous as they are, and they are, and they're, they're brutal. Um, they are, like you said, kind of victims of circumstance too. Uh, and I think that that's something that's easy to overlook. You know, if you're just watching this movie as an exploitation, 1970s violent kind of murder movie, it works on that level and it's it's good and entertaining on that level but if you think about it even a little bit it's more complex than you might imagine yeah and and i mean you could almost miss that if you just missed the first you know 5 10 minutes because i think craven does a really nice job of setting that up in the beginning um you know especially when he's talking about the air force uh, you know it's it's like it's like civilization is nearby but it's literally flyover country right yeah <laughs> you know these modern airplanes are zooming by and being noisy and disrupting them and they they drop their junk there these guys are running around with obvious like surplus equipment that they found that's been abandoned um, they're using walkie-talkies that have USAF on them. You know, they're really just scavenging this stuff. The crumbs, you know, drop from the table. But there's some real peril, you know, uh, when he mentions all this. Uh, he's packing up a pig and a crate in the back of his car, his truck as he's getting ready to leave. But he's obviously really nervous even about leaving, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting. Like, he, it's almost... It's never really said, but it almost feels like he has for a long time had this comfortable sort of understanding or relationship or agreement with them. Because 
as I guess we later learn, he arguably fathered. <laughs> yeah, that's a big exposition piece later. Yeah. I, I, I mean, we may as well talk about it here because, yeah. I mean, it, it, but yeah, he says that he and his wife moved out to this area. And, and I guess that, you know, it was before it was desolate and, and they had, um, a baby girl who he just gushes over and says she was the most beautiful child you've ever seen in your life. But then his wife became pregnant again and they don't really make much of it in this movie. They do mention the fact that this was like a nuclear, um, weapon test site. Um, I feel like in the remake, they make more of a deal out of it and Mm -hmm. suggest that, um, the disfigurement that, these mutants or whatever have uh, is is potentially a result of the radiation in the area. They don't make a big deal out of it. In fact, most of the clan, the feral clan here, is not disfigured with yeah. one exception that I can't wait to talk about. But, um, <laughs> but he says that his wife then became pregnant again and it was just a terrible pregnancy and when she gave birth, the kid... It was a 20-pound kid, and it came out sideways and almost tore his wife in half and just oh co- disfigured and covered in hair and um, was just, you know, tr- trouble from the beginning. You know, from the time the kid could move around, accidents started happening. You know, they found he found chickens with their heads bit off and... Um, yeah, all kinds of other weird things happening until eventually he went into town to get supplies or something. And we, when he came back, the entire house uh, had been burned down with his wife and daughter in it. And the only survivor was this son. And so he beat the son within an inch of his life, took him out to the desert and left him for dead. Um, but he didn't die. A Fred thinks, you know... Uh, he somehow managed his words not mine managed to steal some whore that nobody cared about and ended up fathering this whole brood of feral children (laughs) who are now adult and living in the hills it's a real kind of classically insane story right it's like it's really over the top tale as old as time sort of frankenstein type type origin story for this clan yeah uh, not impossible you know like (laughs) could happen (laughs) 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 so you've got that set up there and and you don't see that's what one of the things that i like about this movie is you don't see much of the feral clan at all for at least the first half of the movie Mm -hmm. not until they're a real threat yeah. Right. You you hear them talking and, and making noises, but but the camera doesn't look at them. Um, yep. And and a lot of the time uh, you see things from their perspective. They are uh, very voyeuristic for the first half of the movie, looking through uh, binoculars and speaking via radio. And it's very menacing and, and it... it the, the title is is fitting, The Hills Have Eyes, because it does look like this family who ends up getting stranded out there, they're being watched. 
mm-hmm. from afar. Biden, yeah. Jupiter, Papa. Papa Hunter, identify. Mama, Pluto, you see a station wagon and a trailer? That's what Mercury said, if you can believe him. They coming. Pluto. They stuck good. Easy pickings now. And that, that voyeuristic, you know, kind of being observed, being watched, uh, it's spooky. Yeah. Um, because, of course, the family has no idea what's going on. The The family we're introduced to immediately because they come right after the scene with Fred and Ruby. The family shows up. And it's a, 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 a relatively big family, you know, traveling yeah. together. The, the patriarch is Big Bob Carter, played by Russ Grieve. I don't know a lot of these people, and I'll gush about the ones that I do know about in just a second. But um, <laughs> Of course you will. <laughs> yeah. Big Bob Carter and his wife, um, Ethel, played by Virginia Vincent, they're, they're the, the parents. And they're celebrating their 25th anniversary, which I guess is the silver anniversary and some relative, an aunt or something, has gifted them an old silver mine because it's their <laughs> silver anniversary. And that's why they're here. They're taking this trip to California. You know, again, being a Midwesterner myself, my family did this. You know, we would travel to the coast. We would travel to Florida. We would travel... I think we only went to California once when I was really little, but those of us who live in landlocked <laughs> areas, these are like, you know, the exciting, you know, going to the, the coast and the ocean and seeing all of that, that's that's a big deal. And so that's what they're doing, but they're taking a route so that they can see this mine that they have been gifted. And Fred tells them, that's stupid, there's nobody out there, the mine has been stripped, there's no silver, there's nothing to see, don't go out there. <laughs> but they're determined. And they've got uh, kids. Um, their oldest daughter, Lynn, is played by D. Wallace. Mm-hmm. Go you, ahead. Every, every, no, everybody <laughs> knows. I don't have to. Everybody knows. I, I just love D. Wallace. I, I really, honest to God, think that she is a very, very good actress. She just has a natural presence. Um, she is believable as whatever character she plays, I'm I'm envious of her. You know, I do. You know, I act. I, I, I'm hesitant to even say that because it's silly community theater stuff that I do, and I don't consider myself talented at all. <laughs> but I enjoy doing it, um, and so I'm envious of people like her who can just be so natural in every role that they play. And the only movie that she had done before this was a religious film. This was kind of her breakout role. Uh, and it very much was. I mean, you know, very soon after that, she did E.T. And uh, she has just, she's been around in Hollywood doing all kinds of movies. She's huge in, in the horror world still. Mm-hmm. She yep. pops up all over the place and in cameo roles. So many roles. movies we've done. And in starring <laughs> roles. I know. I mean, of the 300 movies that we've done, probably 15 or more, you know, <laughs> she's she's been in. And, and she's young and fresh-faced, but 
you know, completely recognizable. Not only is she a beautiful woman, but she has um, a beautiful, soft, kind of soothing voice that I just love. I could go on about her forever. I won't. Uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll leave it at that. But her breakout role, love to see her in this. She's married to uh, a guy named Doug, played by Martin Spear, and they have a baby named Katie. Mm-hmm. Then there are uh, two other kids who I don't know if they're twins. I was getting twin vibes from them just because they look similar ages and they're both blondes. But um, Bobby and Brenda are uh, the youngest. Bobby's played by a guy named Robert Houston or Houston, uh, who I don't know anything about aside from the fact that he was not the first choice. They cast somebody else. But the other young man that they cast in the role read the script and was disgusted and, and turned it down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was second choice and he got called in to play it. And then Brenda is played by, uh, Susan Lanyer, who is actually, she's, she's, uh, supposed to be Dee Wallace's younger sister. She's actually, I think, a year older than her, but she looks yeah. young. They're the youngest and they have two dogs, two German shepherds, Beauty and Beast. Um, <laughs> and they're all, and they're all traveling together in a camper. Uh, it's just so I, I I know these people. I am these people. And yeah. and I think that that's what Craven was going for. Uh, I, I think that he felt the same way. You know, he came from a um, uh, like a Southern Baptist family. Yeah. I think his father left. And, and when his father left, his his mother got very heavily into the Baptist church. And so they were very, very conservative. Um, couldn't, <laughs> couldn't dance. Uh, the, the only movies that, um, Craven saw in the theater until he was a senior in college were Disney films. So crazy. I know. And, you know, we, uh, the reason that we do this is because we have so much respect and admiration for Wes Craven and because we love horror movies and he made so many great ones. I always love going back and watching interviews with Wes Craven and even him playing himself in New Nightmare. Mm. Y- you mentioned that he was an English professor uh, <laughs> and he seems like it. Uh, yeah. He seems very much like an English professor, but what always I, I'm I'm never surprised by how intelligent he is. He just seems like an incredibly intelligent person, but he's an incredibly soft-spoken person. Mm-hmm. He has a very soft, soothing, kind of fatherly voice like he, he he just seems like somebody that you would go to if you needed advice you know like like yeah. sagely wisdom he seems like the kind of person that you would have gone to and you know especially his first films and arguably moving forward his films are are so violent and so brutal and and then you see the mind that they came from and it's just it's 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 wild, you know, like you would yeah. never expect such an articulate, soft-spoken, seemingly gentle person to come up with these ideas. And, and you know, everybody 
that I've heard talk about him, Heather Langenkamp in particular comes to mind, Who, but really anybody who has worked with him, just talk about what a wonderful and amazing, kind man he was. Uh, and, you know, all those Nightmare on Elm Street kids, I, I think that they looked to him very much as kind of a fatherly figure. And so I, I'm glad that we continue to honor him in this way because I just have so much... Uh, respect for him, not only as a filmmaker, certainly as a filmmaker, um, but he just seemed like such a decent, smart, cool guy. Uh, and I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he really is. And uh, and like you said, it doesn't really matter. We've talked about this before, right? We've even talked about this in previous uh, episodes, uh, you know, that just people misunderstand horror and people misunderstand maybe the creative process and the process of making creative stuff. You can write dark things. You can paint and draw dark stuff. Uh, you can even just love dark things or Halloween or, or, or music, right. you know, that uh, heavy metal, that you know, tends, it just has all this horrific imagery. Usually actually doesn't mean that you yourself have these predispositions to being dark and acting in a evil bad way it seems to be just an escape for us just a way to experience the darkness of life that we all know exists and we have to encounter and confront from time to time in a very safe way um, and people have even argued that it it may actually benefit people who are i i read <laughs> i read this thing that um i don't know if it's true and of course you never know but that studies blah 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 have been done recently and talked about how people who are horror fans have fared the pandemic a little better than others you know i don't know this this is some study somebody did somewhere some university but the you know the theory was that these folks kind of practiced for it you know, like pe people like us have, have had to kind of confront these uncomfortable images and these uncomfortable feelings and live vicariously through these characters that are put in these absolutely horrifying situations on screen when you can't help but ask yourself, you know, what would you do in that situation? You know, and so we've kind of worked through these emotions in advance so that perhaps, you know, when something truly horrible confronts us, these folks are maybe a little more experienced and able to kind of compartmentalize or at least, you know, deal with those those emotions a little bit better. It's just a theory, you know. Yeah. But it does make you think because there's some pattern there, right? Here is Wes Craven who came from this extremely religious family and he was very sheltered as a child. And it turns out, you know, later on, this is the kind of stuff that he ends up really good at. It's not the only stuff he ever wanted to do. No. You know, God, he tried really to break out and people kept turning his projects into horror movies and yeah. eventually just like, all right, well, you know, I mean, if this is my lot, this is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to embrace it and do it. And he's really, really good at it. Right. So, you know, it's just, uh, it's complicated, right? Nothing and, is. Yeah. You know, the only instance that I can remember him branching out, he did a movie called Music of the Heart that I think starred Meryl Streep and was a very sentimental kind of sappy movie. I know that I saw it. I don't remember anything about it at all. I, I imagine that it was quality, but yeah, I mean, he kind of fell into this niche, um, and he was good at it. He just happened to be good at it. You know, and, and talking about, you know, uh, 
horror filmmakers or writers or whomever and, and horror fans, yeah, you know, first of all, on a personal level, I know this to be true. You and I are huge fans of the genre. We, we are both big softies you know yeah. we we <laughs> pretty emotional we, we, we are we are we're we, sensitive we guys yeah <laughs> uh, <it laughs> we cried in front of each other embarrassingly on several occasions uh-huh. watching some some touching moment in a movie <laughs> right and so you know on a personal level i know that but then also you know Linnea quickly told us and i've heard this from not not directly but in interviews and things i've heard from other stars who do conventions and things that horror fans are the most gracious and uh kind uh people that they have ever encountered which is why so many people in the industry are willing and eager to do fan conventions and things because the fans are so grateful and 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 generous mm. and and complimentary and and kind and i believe it i i believe it 100% you know that i, I it's it's people like us and i don't know i i don't know if i can speak for you on this but i can speak for myself i i think that i am a a kind of person who found it difficult to find a community and a crowd I, I I eventually ended up finding theater people, and I, I I found you know a deep affinity for people who shared my love of horror, and that's and, and so I embraced those communities and am grateful for them. And I think that there are a lot of people like me out there who wanted something to identify with, and and they they came upon this and were embraced by a community and and that feels good (laughs) (laughs) and and here we are my goodness how old is your kid we've been doing this since before your kid was even a twinkle in your eye yeah yeah he's five now yeah you're right we had no idea yeah so it's it's been like six years or something that we've been doing this and we've Mm. said a hundred times that the reason that we're still doing it is because we receive such positive and encouraging feedback from people all over the world. It's gratifying. It feels good. And, and we're happy to, you know, I, I love talking to you every week. You and I have become, I consider you one of my closest friends, but I don't think that we would continue doing it and recording it for posterity no. if it weren't if it weren't if it weren't for that uh, you know kind of community that we feel a part of. So yeah, the the, the people out there and it, it's not I'm not going to be reaching any of them via this podcast, but the people out there who don't get it, they just don't get it. But those of you who are listening and those of you who are fans the same way that we are, you get it. <laughs> We're really patting ourselves on the back here, aren't we? Welcome to the club. <laughs> that's, that's, that, I'm not meaning to. I, I'm, I'm really, I, I, well, I'm really just trying to express gratitude. Gratitude. Yeah, yeah. you know, like I, I'm so thankful for it. It really... It brings a lot of joy to my life. This is a really, 
really fun, safe. Uh, you know, you wouldn't again. People looking at it from the outside wouldn't see it, right? Um, wouldn't under wouldn't necessarily understand it or believe it. But uh, for those of us in the know, <laughs> including all of you guys listening out there, you get it. You know, you know this is a this is our safe space. I guess it you is, could say. and and I want to yeah. make it a safe space for our listeners. And recently, I offended somebody, and I honestly try really hard not to offend anybody uh because that's that's not what this podcast is about this podcast is just about having fun and and talking about movies and i I don't want to i don't want to turn anybody off i don't want to offend anybody first of all you know we want listeners you know (laughs) 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 but 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 secondly you know we we do want to make this a place where people can um retreat to retreat and and not be on their guard or something like that yeah exactly uh so my point is i never obviously you and i are people um real people with feelings and thoughts and opinions and and i'm bound to say things from time to time that some people are not going to agree with. There's just no way of getting around that. But I never mean to, ins- you know, I respect our listeners and uh, I respect their ideas and their thoughts and their values. Um, I, I never mean to come from a place of of challenging people or or demeaning people. I never mean to come from that place. So moving forward... I hope everybody will keep that in mind. I, I, I'm just trying to have a good time. And, and we don't script this stuff, you know? We're just talking off the top of our heads. And I say stupid shit all the time. Um, and often, I beg Todd to edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> and usually, for, you know, what we publish, you know, out there publicly you do edit out my stupid shit and i really appreciate that but uh i also really like the fact that on our patreon page we are posting these things unedited because those fans who appreciate us enough to want to subscribe to our patreon i want them to get the whole raw deal you know, I want them to know the things that we say behind the scenes. I want them to know the things that we say and cut out because I feel like that gives them some more insight just into who we are. And it's maybe a little bit more of a genuine look at us. And uh, I like, you know, you and I, every every time we do this, we're like, I'm Todd and I'm Craig with two guys and a chainsaw and that's where the episode ends. And then you and I keep talking for 15 or 20 minutes. Yeah. Um, and and, and <laughs> exactly. we keep talking about the movie or we uh, talk about things that are going on in our lives. Um, and I I like that the people who choose to have the opportunity to, to hear that stuff. Yeah. Me too. But maybe we better get back to the movie. <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> sure, let's do it. Well, I mean, 
you know, it, it, I would say it follows a formula, but it also kind of helped establish the formula, too. Some of these things, anyway. The gas station attendant warns the family not to go. Uh, it had been done at least once before, but, you know, Craven liked it, and he did it, and it became a trope. Then, you know, we got this these themes that continue on into Deliverance and things like that. It, it does, at some point, become kind of a rape-revenge story. And again, themes like, the, you know, that straw dogs exploded, explored as far as what are you going to do when the, the most brutal things happen to you? You yourself have to stoop to the level of what you're up against in order to do it. And, and honestly, the whole uh, man from nowhere thing of the Western genre is, is very much of that, which also takes place in the American West. Nobody from the town can deal with the bad guys because the bad guys are so bad and nobody in town is. You got to have this guy from absolutely nowhere, just this mythical figure, a deus ex machina kind of person to just show up with a mysterious past, and nobody knows where he's from. Uh, he's got to deal with the situation because he, only he can get as brutal as he needs to get to get things done. And then he has to leave because he's not welcome in the community anymore because he's violated all the social norms. He's the hero, but he can't stay. That's just sort of the, the mythology there. So these people are getting into this situation that they are completely unprepared for. Like, I would be driving across the West. They're, they suddenly um, get spooked out by some planes flying really low overhead, and Bob kind of goes a little crazy with the car, tries to dodge a rabbit in the middle of the road, like really stupidly. <laughs> Rolls off of the of the road. Oh, by the way, they're a bit lost as well. Their <clears throat> axle completely breaks right in the territory, like you said, of where we have seen um, these bad guys have been surveilling them. We, well, we haven't seen the bad guys, but we've heard them. We've seen through their POV, and we know that they're in trouble. And what happens? But Bob goes off in one direction, and Doug, uh, the the one of the older, yeah, the son-in-law, goes in the other direction, and they're going to leave the two girls, well, the three girls, Claire, played by Dee Wallace, the younger uh, daughter, uh, her name was Brenda, and Bobby, he's the man (laughs) who's left behind to guard the gals. But they're not really worried about anything, right? Because they can't. Not see terribly. Anything. I mean, the the mom's like worried about rattlesnakes, but they're yeah. certainly not worried about feral cannibals living in the hills. <laughs> for sure. Well, and and you know, you can see for miles, right? Except for the hills nearby. You know, you just if you feel like if there's something coming at you, you're going to see it from a mile away anyway. Yeah, um, like some animal or something like well, that. Well, and, and and they're relatively prepared i mean you know they're yeah. in a camper so they have food they have and food. water um yeah, and and, panicking. and and they have weapons um they have guns. two guns they have two pistols uh big bob takes one uh and he leaves one with bobby the mom says that she thinks that doug ought to have a gun too but doug says i am not comfortable leaving you all here you know without the women a without a gun so he yeah. goes off without one but he's not worried you know like well, and i also like how big bob is sort of set up as a tough guy i mean he's an he's we hear that he's a retired cop from you know 25 years on the force he stands out there and he's just cursing up a storm it's actually kind of hilarious 25 years i'm a cop in the worst goddamn precinct in cleveland you shoot ass at me and the hillbillies throw dogs off the roofs at me and I'm even shot at on two separate occasions by my own men. 
But none of these bastards ever come as close to killing me as my own goddamn wife and her goddamn roadmaps and her wrong turns and her goddamn hysterical screaming and her... Watch your language. And you watch your heart, too. You know what Dr. Springer said. Well, Dr. Springer can take his stethoscope and shove it into his little black bag sideways. <laughs> I, I mean, I understand that it's the 70s, but he's also racist. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yes, he is. I'm going to have to bleep some things out. Yeah. yeah. You know, again, also sort of like Deliverance, where these guys really set themselves up as as tough wilderness folks. You know, they're going to kind of go out there on their adventure. They realize that they're they're just not equipped for this. Maybe in the city, you know, with his badge and his backup and all, all the stuff at his disposal and his knowledge, Bob is, is good and fine. But he gets neutered very quickly uh, out here in the wilderness. Yeah. Um, and that's terrifying, right? Because he's like your right. best hope. <laughs> well, and, and Bobby, the, the young son, I feel like he's, put in a position like oh, you stay back with the women folk and he is young and I feel like initially he has kind of some like bravado like mm-hmm. you know he's he's kind of a tough guy like he can do flips and stuff <laughs> <laughs> he's good at gymnastics <laughs> he's athletic <laughs> but I also like that one of the first things that happens is that the dogs are agitated, especially uh, Beauty, the female mm-hmm. dog. She's very agitated and she's barking. And they they talk about the women and Bobby talk about you know you know what is her problem and they say well maybe there are snakes around or or and she can hear them or something and and I think it's uh, Lynn D Wallace's character who says well but beauty's not freaking out and one of them says well or excuse beast isn't freaking out and one of them says well that's that's beast's mo uh he's Mm. always quiet until he makes the kill strike he he doesn't want anybody to see it coming which is important later because beast becomes a really important character later in this movie yeah but beauty is freaking out and she ends up getting loose and running into the hills and Bobby goes running after her and and he can hear her barking um, and he hears other noises and eventually he hears that terrifying sound of a dog being fatally hurt you know that that terrible squealing yelping sound and he actually finds her and, and um, she has been killed and gutted um, yeah. and it's it's pretty gross uh, and <laughs> apparently uh, Craven and the producer bought an actual dead dog from like the sheriff's department yeah and used it as the prop it's pretty gross you know I I, I, I love dogs and I hate seeing them in peril but like <laughs> if it's really in in service to the movie I can totally deal with it and this is because not only does Bobby find the dead dog and know something weird is going on but he also I don't know if he fully sees one of the hill people but he definitely knows that there's somebody around yeah and and he ends up uh, trying to run back home but he falls um, and is unconscious apparently for a while and doesn't end up coming back until quite a bit later when it's dark and 
he doesn't tell anybody else what he's seen. Yeah. And I'm not sure if it was just because he didn't want to scare them, but ultimately I don't think that was a wise choice. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I think maybe if they had known that there was a menacing presence, that they would have been a little bit more on guard and a little bit more prepared and they wouldn't have felt comfortable splitting up when things started to get hairy, which they do pretty soon. But that all starts with when Big Bob finally does get back to the service station. Big Bob is walking in the direction of the service station and he sees uh, that, you know, the well, it's kind of, a, you know, there's lots of little things in the image. You know, it's quite good filmmaking, actually. The little things in the image that suggest things that are ominous. One of the things is that that pig is no longer in its cage. You know, the door is a little open. Big Bob walks in. There seems to be blood on the wall on the floor. Uh, he pulls out his gun. He's very cop, you know, going in there. Um, and then he gets shot at. We know that it's Fred, or we imagine it's Fred. Uh, and he goes to the door where Fred had shot him from and bangs on it and bangs on it and finally kicks it in. And Fred is is hanging from the ceiling, from a belt. And he pulls him down. Get your stupid neck out of that belt, you jackass. <laughs> she left you hanging after you took a shot at me. Not until you tell me what the hell is going on. You're trespassing. That's what. Give it up. You always try to stop trespassers by hanging yourself? Something like that. Well, Fred says, I thought you were somebody else. Um, uh-huh. And this is when he gives that whole backstory explanation that we've already explained. Yeah, gone through, yeah. I think that he was killing himself because that would have been preferable Preferable. to Mm -hmm. actually being confronted and assaulted by his son, Jupiter, who we haven't seen yet, but we see now. (laughs) Yeah, Jupiter leaps out at Fred. Uh, Well... How does he take them? I can't remember. He takes out Fred first, and then he gets he bigger. jumps. He jumps through the glass window and yes. and, pull, and pulls Fred out, and we don't see what happens. But then Bob goes out and finds Fred like impaled into the door of the outhouse. Yes, and then um, Big Bob jumps out and starts mashing him in the head with a crowbar. It's a brutal attack, and apparently they had to make some cuts to some of these things, including this scene, in order to not get an X rating from the MPAA. Yeah. Because Craven was very, you know, he, especially early on, he was very, uh, well, this is also Vietnam War era time, we're kind of coming out of that, had very clear ideas about violence and how he felt that movies, particularly Westerns, really glorified violence. And he was like, people need to see real you know, violence on the screen, like like they need to see it up close and personal in all of its actual brutality so that it's not glorified. So if you're going to have violence on the screen, it needs to be realistic and it needs to be extremely uncomfortable. You know, when he did the house, the last house on the left, that was kind of his, his creed, his credo for that. And uh, he carries that through into this film as well. He had to make some cuts, but I'll say even, I think even, even today, the film feels pretty brutal. 
there are more brutal things now. We have seen much more realistic and and bad stuff, but I think the emotional reactions of the characters, yeah. especially in some of the scenes coming up later, just really support the stark brutal reality of what's happening to them. I can't think of many bad many worse ways to go than to be, you know, bludgeoned over the head with a crowbar or something like that. I don't remember that. I, Maybe I, it was Fred who was bludgeoned with a crowbar at first. Yeah, I, yes, that might that's be it. it. Yeah, be- because um, Bob runs back, tries to run back to his family, but he's being tormented off screen by mm-hmm. Jupiter, is the Gleefully. dad's name. Yeah. Uh, and, and eventually Bob, uh, I, I don't know if he has a heart attack or if he just is having heart pain, but he's all sweaty and he falls to the ground. And seems to be a heart attack because it's set up earlier that she says, remember your heart condition. Right. Yeah. And, mm. and he's, um, disabled. Jupiter gets his gun and then Jupiter gets on the radio and says something like it's a go. Uh, mm. and that's when things start getting scary and and like you said like the movie is brutal and it is violent and there is some violent content but compared to today's standards and far of how in terms of how graphic it is it's really not that graphic it's just really scary like it's so perilous Uh it feels real it feels it has just a grittiness to it i think and a reality to it you know i just actually just before we sat down to record this i got off of watching the um the evil dead remake i finally got around to seeing that and my god is that a violent movie Uh but but you almost laugh at it it's so over the top right it's scary and it's super bloody and the effects are great and very realistic looking i suppose but I mean, it's over-the-top silly. Like, you're not going to imagine anything like this is ever going to remotely happen to you <laughs> or your right. friends. But, but something this... like this, it doesn't It doesn't have to be all hack and slash mm-hmm. to be scary. Just to feel powerless. <sighs> yeah. And, and especially, I think, uh, it's smart to put a family in peril because... When you're in, when, like this happens every day, if you're in (laughs) a situation where there's a lot of danger and people are potentially in danger, if you're in a situation like that with strangers, sure, you have empathy, you care, you don't want to see people get hurt, but at least it's not you. But if it's your family, it may as well be you. You know, it's an extension of you. Yeah. And uh, it, what what happens is they lure Bobby away from the camper by imitating the dog. Beast, yeah. The dog who is also run off at this point. And once he's gone, he comes back and he goes to open the camper and it's locked. And he thinks that he's just locked himself out. But we immediately see that the truth is in his absence Pluto, another one of the family, has gotten in there. And just his presence in there. You know, the mom, Ethel, and the sister, Brenda, and the baby, and the baby. <laughs> are in there asleep, completely vulnerable. Yeah. And even though he's not doing anything menacing to them in that moment, just knowing that he's locked in there with them and that they are completely vulnerable is so scary. And I do oh. want to pause here because this is really kind of the first time I think 
that we've seen him. But uh, Pluto is played by Michael Bear. It's Berryman, right? Yeah, Michael Berryman. Michael Berryman, who, if you are a horror fan or a fan of Weird Science from the 80s, <laughs> you will totally recognize Michael or, Berryman. Or One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He Was, was in he that. in that? I don't remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but uh, this guy, he was born premature with I, something, I think he has said something like 26 birth defects. Um, and his cranium wasn't fully formed and he had to go through all kinds of surgeries. And so he has a somewhat disfigured look and he's very menacing in appearance. Now, anytime you see him in interviews, he is highly intelligent, incredibly well-spoken, um, and, really and just nice. seems really nice, <laughs> yeah. just seems like a really cool dude who was just given this lot in life with his appearance and capitalized on it. Good for him. Yeah. Um, and he's great uh, as a menacing presence in these movies. I'm actually a really big fan of him. I don't think that I would be such a big fan if I hadn't seen him in interviews, but seeing him in interviews He's just so articulate, and he speaks so smartly about the industry and and his place in it. And uh, I just I have a lot of admiration for the guy. But he looks like a crazy backwoods. <laughs> you know, they they don't have to do anything. They don't that's have right. to make him up. They don't have to put prosthetics on him because that's what he looks like. Mm-hmm. And it's. Uh, it, it, it really works. But he's in there, and then it's just a siege, yeah. and and eventually they set off a bomb, well, I guess, of sorts. Doug had come back from his outing, and he had just, he said he didn't really find anything, but there was a big junkyard, and he had a bunch of random stuff, like a spool of wire, and I don't even know what he was planning on doing with all this stuff, honestly. He just thought it was cool or useful. it might be useful. yeah. And he and his wife, they are actually banging in the um, station wagon when this guy sneaks in and uh, and Bobby is lured away. So when Bobby comes back, he knocks on the station wagon door and interrupts them and says, hey, God, I locked myself out again. And like you said, at this point, nobody, you know, they don't realize that the Pluto is inside taking things out of the fridge, taking out meat, scavenging, basically. Pilfering, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then um, around the corner, I think, comes, uh, what's his name? Mars. Mars, yeah. They all have these names of planets. or. Yeah, I thought it was really funny that the um, German German censorship committee or whatever, you know, I, I suppose our equivalent of the MPAA, um, they, they forced a lot of cuts and they changed the family from being cannibalistic humans to being aliens. <laughs> yeah. That's so weird, right? Aliens who hate humans. Right. Somehow that makes everything more easy to stomach, I guess. Which, which worked because they were all named after different planets. Uh, I thought that was really kind of funny. But they, they, they are. They're just very menacing. They're dirty and they're... 
I mean, and they look kind of feral. Uh, apart from Pluto, though, they they just they're they're just dirty people, you know. They, they're yeah, not, they are. In in the remake and the sequel of the remake, they are horribly disfigured. Yeah, it's like inbred, and yeah, they're they 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 look like monsters. I think it's better to not have them look like monsters. Honestly, I think so too. It's better to humanize them as much as possible. And again, it just goes again with with that idea that these are real things that could happen to real people and we can't glorify it. We, life is not so black and white. You know, there's a scene here before, again, he, the explosion hasn't gone off yet, but he is getting the key from those two, and he admits that Be- uh, Bobby admits uh, that Beauty is dead. He just cries. His acting here is fantastic. Just like you had said before, Bobby didn't really want to talk about it. He seemed disturbed sort of the whole time, and you could just tell something was off. And, you know, then the other dog runs off, so he's distressed about that. And he just kind of has a little breakdown here. Mm-hmm. Beauty's dead. What? Beauty's been dead since this afternoon. Beauty's dead. What happened? Why didn't you tell us sooner? I tried. When I found her, she'd been gutted. She'd, somebody slit her right it was pretty bad. I was so scared, I ran away. Apparently, uh, one of the requirements for this role was to be able to cry on cue, and he, for all he the was roles, able to do I that think. in the audition. Yeah. Oh, God, he was... I love that. And again, this is just one of those very, very touching human moments about this movie, where these characters are so real, um, and their emotions are so genuine that it does make what happens to them just feel more visceral and real and brutal. The peak of the brutality happens in a matter of minutes. You know, this is yeah. an hour and a half long movie, and maybe this this whole scene is maybe five, seven minutes long. Maybe. I, I think it's a distraction. They uh, kind of set off this explosion, and they see and hear that Big Bob is like nailed to a tree out in the desert and he is yes. engulfed in flames. And what makes it all the more horrific is that he's not dead and he's pleading for help and and he's clearly in agony and he's on fire. Doug goes into the camper and gets a fire extinguisher, still has no idea that Pluto is on top of Brenda, you know, holding her mouth closed so that she can't scream. He's completely oblivious, and he just shouts to her to take care of the baby. And so then they all run out. Everybody else who's still there runs out to where Bob is on fire, and they put him out and pull him down. And Ethel, the mom, is completely in shock and in denial and she's just saying that's not my bob that's not my bob it's such a convincing emotional breakdown and your heart just breaks for this woman Uh her acting is so good and this moment is so touching and real you know which we don't often get in horror movies you know one of the biggest things that makes me crazy sometimes about these movies is like somebody's friend will die right in front of them and then they just kind of bounce back and and get back to escaping or doing whatever like they've almost forgotten about it an hour later you know or something like that uh, but definitely not in this movie no um, she she is completely broken and completely detached from reality from this point on she just cannot accept what's happening 
no help to anybody at this point, including herself. And apparently when they were shooting us in the original script, he was supposed to be nailed to a tree. And uh, there are no really no trees out in the desert. But And they kind of realized that when they were out there filming. And they just kind of looked one way and looked the other way and ended up setting all this up uh, at this Joshua tree, which is an endangered <laughs> plant. Um, they should have gotten in real trouble for setting this this tree on fire, actually. But uh, eh, it was the 70s. <laughs> they, got they got away with it. It was a different time. Well, it wasn't nearly as bad as what was happening back in the trailer. Mars comes in around the corner. Um, they're both inside there. And this is just, it's shot in a very messy, appropriately messy way. You know, very documentary style. Yeah. We can hear that Pluto was back there attempting, uh, if not actually trying to rape this woman. Mars comes in and he d- tears him off of her and says, what are you doing? You're not a real man. Let me show you what a real man is. And he goes back there. In the meantime, he 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 sees the baby. He hands the baby to Pluto. He says, here, take the baby. They run out with the baby. The mom is in there. They drop the baby on the floor. It's just a mess inside. Bobby and the mom and Dee Wallace um, come, come back. In. Only yeah. to see Pluto running away. I don't think he has a baby yet, but they go in and Mars almost immediately shoots the mom um, yeah. in the chest and she falls down like onto a couch or, or something. And then Lynn realizes that her baby is right there. And of course, she is 100% motivated by protecting her baby. But Mars shoots her, and and she still continues to try to fight, and she actually gets one good stab in. She gets she stabs him in the leg, but then he shoots her again, close range, in the chest, and and she's dead. You know this is brutal. This is a young mother trying to defend her infant, mm-hmm. and she's just brutally, brutally murdered right there and as you said like it's 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 very much suggested in this movie that either pluto or mars or both had raped brenda in the back of the camper mm-hmm. um in the remake which i will contend is a good movie from a cinematic perspective and, and it's very true to the original there, there are very few changes in terms of plot and pacing and that type of thing um but it's even more gratuitously violent and brutal and i don't remember if i i i I surely have in 300 episodes um this is the one movie that i made my partner alan watch and he was mad at me for weeks (laughs) Like, he was so disturbed and upset by it that he was legitimately angry at me for making him watch it. Why did you make him watch it? I do kind of Because I thought it was a good movie. Like, I I thought that, you know, as violent and as graphic as it was, I thought that it was really, really well made. I don't know Mm. why I thought that he would appreciate that (laughs) because he doesn't even really (laughs) like horror movies these things we learn over time right and and much like me he is particularly disturbed by sexual violence and the sexual violence is a lot more explicit oh um it's it's not it's not just a suggestion it's very clear what is happening it's not um terribly um 
graphic. Like, it's not like there's a lot of nudity, but it is very clear what is happening. And it is very disturbing and very upsetting, and it was a mistake to have him watch it. (laughs) it (laughs) One that I paid for. I mean, it, it really, like, uh, it was a hard watch, and I'm not, you know, I've, I'm not really interested in seeing that movie again for that reason. You right. Know, that scene was just upsetting. Once again, you can say that, again, it services the plot and the whole point and the whole theme of the movie. I am certainly not against violence as long as it's not gratuitous. I do feel like that sort of veered into gratuitous exploitation, like, hey, it's the modern age and we can do more and we should do more because what's the point of remaking this movie if we can't? And arguments can be made for that. But That's uh, true, but at the same time, if you watch that movie and if you compare those scenes, they're not that different, really. I, I don't know why. I think that maybe it's just because... <sighs> I don't know. This feels very 70s and and yeah. the the remake is very sharp and clean. Yeah, it's very mo- it's like it could have been, happened yesterday. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's maybe a detachment from the the era, the time period, you know. Yeah, I, I don't know. Thing. I mean, this this movie is disturbing and upsetting too. Um and and you know, all that happens really really fast and then Mars as Doug and Bobby are, you know, coming back, Mars pulls Brenda out of the camper and almost as though he's doing it intentionally to hurt them. Right in plain view, he like pulls Brenda's hair back and sticks the the muzzle of the gun in her mouth like he's going to yes. blow her head off right in front of them. It just so happens that the chamber is empty. Um, and so he, so he's instead, he says, I'll be back for you, which then, you know, she more than anybody is terrified for the rest of the movie because she is certain that they will be back for her. Mm -hmm. And she's right to think that because that is their plan. They leave and Bobby is like yelling out at them and it, the camera from the point of view of the hills just pulls back. You know, it's a zoom back. <laughs> we talked about zoom before. And once again, they are completely surrounded by nothingness. That's yes. how quickly these people came in, took their baby, killed a couple of them, terrorized them, and then left. And what are these people going to do now? Nothing. You know, uh, it's uh, truly like that shot just shows what a hopeless, helpless situation they're in. It's brilliant. Well, and and they have no choice but to take matters into their own hands. Now we see the whole family, the 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 clan family, you know, gather, um, and they're really excited to have a baby that they're going to eat. Yeah, they talk about eating it. They call uh, to their lookout. It's one of the their brothers, Mercury, who is played by the producer, I think, Peter Locke, Peter Locke. in a cameo role. And you only see him a couple of times very, very briefly, but they, they, they call to him and say, you know, come join us, you know, we've got a baby or whatever. And he gets up to come, but Beast sneaks up behind him and pushes him off the cliff. Oh, that's such a great... (laughs) I actually, I love that Beast becomes an active character in this movie. Yeah. He uh, does things to 
actively protect this family, which I believe dogs are loyal and they're intuitive and they can sense danger. I don't know if I believe that this dog could be as stealthy and meticulous <laughs> as he is, but True. I love it in the movie. Um, so he kills Mercury and Jupiter, uh, Papa Jupiter, um, asks Mars, he says, you killed them all, like I said, right? Um, and of course, Mars has to admit that he didn't, but he says, all right, don't, we're not going to eat the baby yet. Keep it alive because I know <laughs> that the dad will come for it. Yeah. And then the night passes and it's morning and he, of course, is right. You know, Doug immediately is running out with Beast to try to find them. And Beast leads Doug right to them. And also, Bobby and Brenda are left at home. And Bobby and Brenda have been painted as the kids of the family, even though technically speaking, they are adults. You know, I would guess that they're supposed to be 17, 18, somewhere around there. But they are, are kind of left alone. And they find that somebody has left behind one of the radios that they communicate with. So they can hear what they're talking about and their plans. So they're a little bit prepared. Doug tells Beast to go get the bad guys because Pluto and, and uh, Jupiter are headed towards the camper. And so Beast goes after them. He ends up taking out Jupiter, stalking him um, quietly, mm -hmm. uh, sneaking up behind him um, and, and first tearing out his Achilles tendon uh, and then later while he's disabled coming back and, and ripping his throat out. And Bobby and Brenda set up a trap um, using the materials that Doug brought back from the abandoned military site or whatever. <laughs> and it's kind of this genius trap where they wrap that steel rope around the um, the wheel of the car, the broken wheel of the car, and they set, yep. they set like a, a loop trap and they use their dead mother's body as bait which is diff like brenda's like we can't do this like it, it feels like you know a desecration of their mother's body mm -hmm. to use her as bait but they do and it works jupiter uh, arrives um he stands right in front of the mom he's confused they start up the car and hit the gas and that wheel starts spinning and pulls the rope and he's trapped in the loop that they've set and he gets dragged in and uh they're celebrating their win, but then the the trap breaks and, and Jupiter gets free. But they have another trap set. I don't know if Craven or whoever designed this came up with it, but we've seen it done in other movies that we've talked about. Yeah, um, they they fill the uh, cabin of the camper with gas they've got like gas tanks or something and they run into the camper but then they jump out the back window and they've got it set up so that the, if the door opens it will strike a match and blow the camper up which it does um, but somehow I think that Jupiter smelled the gas and was suspicious yeah. um, and somehow it didn't get him so when Bobby runs back to make sure that he's dead Jupiter attacks him but then Brenda 
attacks Jupiter, like, jumps on his back like a spider monkey and is, like, hitting him and stuff, which I, again, I just, I, I love this movie because you take ordinary people who you couldn't imagine could be capable of something like this, but when their life is threatened or the lives of the ones that they loved are in, are threatened, survival instinct just takes over. And I believe this. I believe that a little tiny blonde girl in an effort to save her brother and herself would jump on this 250-pound guy and do everything that she could to fight. Yeah. And somehow they uh, end up, I don't remember how they end up killing him. Um, I think it's Bobby that kills him. And then they're just rejoicing. They're, I mean, they've, they're hugging. It's like they won the football game. He's got her up in the air and they're just super happy. After Jupiter is taken out, the only business remaining is rescuing the baby. And that's all on Doug. Well, kind of. It's on Doug and Ruby. Yeah, because Ruby's our, you know, Ruby's our little rebel there. You know, yeah. you remember she wanted to escape earlier. Um, and so you can tell she's a little getting uncomfortable with the baby thing. So she actually steals the baby away from the family and runs off and basically delivers him to Doug as Doug is up there looking for them. But they're, but, but, but what's his name? Mars is right behind in chase. Mm-hmm. He is. And so there's a, yeah, wow, there's some really interesting action here, I think, really effective. Uh, you know, he, he kind of hides, he ducks They ducks into a crevice, and Doug pops out, but Mars is right there, he's chasing him. Mars is the last one, except for Ruby and for the mother of the clan, who never leaves the cave. Yeah. <laughs> she's, a, she's a heavy woman um, who never leaves the cave, and ultimately when the movie's over, she's kind of the only one that we don't really know what happened to. Yeah, I mean, that's maybe setting up for a sequel or something. Who knows? <laughs> She's still there. But Doug, uh, he's got his gun, right? But he, that kind of goes off. But Mars ends up on top of him. And there's this huge kind of fight with a knife. And it looks like Mars is going to stab Doug. There's a really mm-hmm. close call next to his head. Finally, Doug turns the tables on him, gets on top of him, and stabs him relentlessly. Well, that's <laughs> first. They're in like a rattlesnake den. Oh. <laughs> um, and uh, right. and Ruby grabs a rattlesnake by the neck and like <laughs> that's like, so silly. Put, puts, it's kind this of silly. silly. I don't know. It is silly. It didn't bother me. I read. You know, this was a live rattlesnake that actually at one point got loose and everybody freaked out until the snake handler uh, found it. Um, but the actress who played uh, Ruby, her name's Janice Blythe, who, by the way, was was called in to audition for Dee Wallace's part, but she really, really wanted to be Ruby. She wanted to be the wild girl. She felt like that was more challenging, that there was more meat to it. And there's a cute story about how, basically, the, the, the role came down to a foot race between all of the actresses <laughs> literally were, were slated and uh there was a literal foot race where uh and, and um Wes Craven was present and uh he said that uh <laughs> they you know they said go and Janice but Blythe didn't run with the rest of the girls and she just kind of looked at Wes Craven and he looked at her and was like what are you doing and she kind of smiled and then turned and took off (laughs) 
overcame <laughs> all the rest of the girls to win the race, and so she got the role. Now, I'm sure that that's a very cute story, and it's not the only reason that she got the role, but it's a good story nonetheless. Yeah, but it is. This, <laughs> this was a real snake, and they wanted her to pick it up, and she said she wouldn't do it unless the producer did it too and so i guess the producer very gingerly kind of touched the snake really like uh. <laughs> um, but that was enough for her and she did it and she like, picked right. it up yeah and uh, she uses it to disable mars and then you're right doug gets on top of him and just stabs him oh i don't know five six seven eight times just now brutally. which version of the movie did you see did we watch the same version when i first saw this uh, when I was in, I think, in high school, and I rented it from the video store. This is where the movie ended. Yeah, the image of his face goes to red, and then... It's like a freeze frame. Uh-huh, yeah. and, and then the credits begin, and that's And the this end. is the ending that Wes Craven really liked, and I guess it was maybe the original ending. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure when the alternate ending got tacked on, but, you know, again, it really hits home. I mean, first of all, it hits home the fact that this guy is just as savage now as these people were, you know? Right. Um, it, it was exactly wrapped around and bookended what, what, what he, the point he was trying to make. It also kind of leads you to wonder, frustratingly, like, well, what happens to everybody now? Right, you know? right. And I like that. I like I do that. I do, that too. It, you don't know. I mean, they're still in the middle of the desert. You know, They still have no way half back. Half of them are know? dead. Could there be others? What's happened to the mom? You know, half of them are dead. You're right. It's like he got his revenge, but it doesn't change anything, right? It doesn't change the fact that many of them are dead. Uh, they saved the baby. But then I was surprised because I expected the movie to end there. And then we got one more scene in the version that I have. Which is actually a little sappy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Where there's a sunset behind them, they're kind of half in silhouette, and they're walking along. And Ruby is there behind them, and they kind of turn around, and there's just almost like an acceptance of Ruby mm-hmm. at this point. Brenda reaches out and holds her hand, almost like building a bridge between the two cultures. <laughs> And then the camera zooms in on the hand holding with the sunset in the background and it kind of fades out. Mm. I was like, that's weird. <laughs> yeah, I th- and I think that the remake does something similar, but then I think the remake goes even a step further. If I remember, I may be making this up because it's been a really long time since I've seen it, but I think that the remake ends with one of those binocular POV shots suggesting that there are more of them that they don't know about um, Mm. and that they are still potentially in peril. Um, But I like the way, I like the original ending of this. Um, It feels very 70s uh, grindhouse. Things aren't just, you know, wrapped up with a nice, neat little bow. Uh, it's, It's kind of left... Well, it's it's jarring, you know. You don't you don't get things tied up for you, and I like that. Mm. There is a sequel to this movie, and I grew up watching it. Um, in fact, I believe I saw the sequel before I saw the original, and the sequel is not very good. Uh, it features a lot of flashbacks to the original movie. It's about a biker gang, kind of not a gang, but like a, a group of kids who are like doing like a. Uh, dirt bike something in the desert and 
they end up getting besieged by these people. And as it turns out, one of the kids in this group is Ruby, which you don't find out until near the end. And mm. um, I, I grew up with it, so I have an appreciation of it. I don't think that it's great. And then, of course, there are the remakes. The first one I saw in the theater and it was a very difficult watch. It's, it's, oh my goodness, it's so violent. It's, it's one of, um, the most uncomfortable movies I've sat through. But at the same time, like I said, I thought it was really well done. And Wes Craven was involved. He didn't direct it. I think he was a producer on it. Um, and he liked it. He was very satisfied with it. And I thought that for what it was, it was good. Like you said, I don't really feel the need to watch it again. And then there was a sequel to the remake, which was just really, really gratuitous. And really, I didn't think it was good at all. Um, huh. I, in fact, I rewatched it recently against my better judgment and was reminded, no, this is crap. Yeah. But this movie I do recommend, uh, you know, it's only, it's Wes Craven's second movie. Um, very much in keeping with his first movie. It's, it's brutal. It's, it's unapologetic. We'll never know how brutal it might have been because they were forced to cut quite a lot. And that footage is believed to be entirely lost. Like it just doesn't exist anymore. So we'll never know how it might have turned out. Um, but, uh, it's just, the 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 character performances are believable uh it's yeah. re- it's it's oddly relatable like you can almost mm-hmm. put yourselves in the yourself in these people's shoes the villains are brutal and nasty but if you take a moment to think about it you realize that they are a product of their circumstances too and i do think that that's an excellent juxtaposition to show that by nature or by circumstance you've got this kind of feral, violent family, but then by circumstance, the nature of the civilized family comes out. And when it comes right down to it, and again, I'm not trying to offend anybody here. This is my opinion, but we, you know, we are animals when it comes right down to it. And we do have a survival instinct and we do have an instinct to protect those who are near and dear to us and put in these types of situations we might find ourselves capable of things that we would never otherwise think ourselves capable of um and i just think that that uh really resonates um if you choose to think about it if you don't it's still a really good 70s grindhouse type movie um, with the quality of acting that you don't normally find in this. That's kind true. Of movie. Yeah. And so you could, uh, <laughs> in the same amount of time, you could either watch it or listen to us talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> this is turning out to be a, a, a banner episode for us. It's a super size episode, but that's okay because it's our 300th and we're allowed to yeah. be a little self-indulgent. <laughs> for a bit of celebration here, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I cannot believe that we've been through 300 nights of sitting down, or mornings for you now. Yeah. <laughs> sitting down and chatting about 300 horror movies. It has been... And will hopefully continue to be just uh, a, a highlight of my week every single week. Me too. Um, 
I love chatting about these things with you. I love the excuse to watch these movies and to talk about them in depth. And also, like you had said earlier, just really, really grateful for the support and the people who, you know, quite frankly, if we had not been getting feedback and not have developed relationships and had conversations, you know, with our listeners um, over all these years, we probably still wouldn't be doing it today. Yeah. So um, we're very grateful for those folks. And also, you know, just uh, those folks who have enjoyed us so much and, and really support what we do so much that they've reached out and actually uh, thrown a few bucks our way to help us uh, do some more things with this podcast. So I just got to give a big shout out to our supporters on Patreon. No matter where you come from, no matter how you're supporting us, we're just grateful that you're listening to this now and have made it to the end of this very long episode. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I know a couple of people who will appreciate it. (laughs) You know, we've (laughs) talked about this before, like, oh, man, we're running long. And then we have a, a few friends who are like, no, we love it. <laughs> keep, it going, keep it going. So to those two of you, you're welcome. <laughs> Easy for them to say. They never see what I cut out. <laughs> well, thanks again for listening. Again, thank you for your support on our 300th episode here. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. You can find us online. You can access the other 299 by going to our website, twoguys.red40net.com. Just search Two Guys in the Chainsaw Podcast. You'll find our Facebook page, our Twitter feed, uh, and, of course, our website. Leave us a comment any one of those places to chat back with us. And until next time, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With Two Guys in the Chainsaw. Chainsaw.